Man, thank you, worship team, and thank you, Joel, for filling in for us. And uh, man, it's great. It's always great to sing praise to the Lord, isn't it? Uh, man, it always does something to my spirit and lightens my load and reminds me of truths. Do me a favor if you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're Romans 8. We're actually going to uh, pick up in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, do me a favor, grab one in the chair in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you, okay? We'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. And uh, man, I hope you've been enjoying this, this journey through uh, the book of Romans. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, and that's why we entitled the series uh, Dear Rome, Love Paul, because it really is a love letter uh, from the Apostle Paul. And today we're going to talk about living life in the Spirit uh, and the power of the Spirit, because that's kind of what Romans 8 is about, is, is as we uh, become followers of Christ, we get a deposit of the third person of the Trinity in our heart. And, and a lot of times, you know, we think power and Spirit means a whole lot of things that it really doesn't mean. And, and today I hope to encourage you with some of the truths that the Apostle Paul says, hey, here's what living in the Spirit does mean. And uh, we've been kind of, we started that last week. We're going to journey this week and next week in that kind of idea. Uh, the story is told, and, and actually I've used this one before, so forgive me if you've heard it before, but the story is told of a, of a father and a son who, who loved art. And uh, they had a large art collection, and uh, they displayed them throughout their home. And, and, uh, and this father and son had a really close relationship all through their high school years and into their college years. And then this young man, it was about the time of the Vietnam War, the, the Vietnam War broke out, and this young man wanted to serve his country. He signed up, and he went to Vietnam. During the Vietnam War, he was... This young boy was shot and killed, and uh, of course the father was incredibly grieved, and uh, just he missed him dearly. One day the dad, the father, he got a, he got a, a random knock at the door, and this young man stood in front of him, and he said, hey, I want you to know that I was a friend of your son's uh, during Vietnam. And he said, I knew uh, his love for art. And he said, I just want you to know, I don't know if you know the entire story, but, but your son died saving my life and saving the lives of several others. And because I knew you loved art, and he said, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an artist myself. He said, I'm not great, but I, I painted a, a portrait of your son. And he pulled that out. And it was, you know, it was certainly not uh, a, a professional, but it was, it was well done. And the father, of course, loved it. And he took this piece of art and he moved several famous pieces of artwork in his home. And he, he put his son's portrait painted by this fellow soldier right in a position of prominence in his house. From that day forward, anytime someone would visit his home, of course, they wanted to see the famous pieces of art. He would start by taking, him to the, taking his friends to the portrait of his son. Eventually, this man passed away, and uh, in his will, it was read that the artwork was to be auctioned off. Art connoisseurs from all over the world came to purchase his very famous artwork. The auctioneer steps up, and everyone's anticipating bidding on beautiful pieces of artwork, and the auctioneer says, before we get to the other paintings, we're going to start with the portrait of this son. He says, do I have any bidders on the portrait of the son? No takers. The auctioneer waits for a moment or two. He says, well, let's start at $100. Someone will bid on the son for $100. And there were no takers. The gardener that worked for the man and his son for years, he loved them both. And he had $20 in his pocket. 
And so he thought he'd start the bidding at $20. So he said, finally, he raised his hand and said, I, I will bid, I will purchase the portrait of the son for $20. Uh, auctioneer says $20. Any take anybody else? $25, $25. Do I hear $25? Nobody wanted to bid for more than $20. Finally, the auctioneer said $20. Going once, going twice, sold to that man right there. With that, the auctioneer closed up his book and he started to leave the home. Well, all these art connoisseurs said, wait a minute, when are we going to get to the Rembrandts? This is what we came to purchase. To which the auctioneer said, the owner of the artwork said this, whoever purchases the sun gets it all. Now, you know, we have uh, been talking about some really deep theological concepts over the last month, month and a half. And we, we started with Romans 1, 2, and 3. We talked about the human condition and complete depravity of mankind. That man is completely unable to please God because not only are, do we do actual sin, but we're born into sin. And so because of that, what everyone in this room justly deserves is the wrath and the penalty of the God that we just sang to and the God that we worship. In fact, we just sang, God consume me from the inside out. If we're not careful, we may get exactly that, right? I hope we mean we're consumed by Christ, consumed by the Spirit. All the garbage inside of us is burned away, and what shines is the holiness and the righteousness of the God that we worship and serve. But because of God's grace and mercy, this doctrine called justification, that we're declared righteous before the God of the universe because of nothing we've done, but because of the works and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And those are credited to our spiritual bank account by grace alone through faith alone. That's the doctrine of justification. And then we talked about this process from, from Romans 5 to Romans 8, the process of growing to be more like Jesus Christ. This process is called sanctification. And then we're going to start, we've been hinting at the idea that Paul's been hinting at that one day, all the credit that goes to Christ, because we're now in the family of God by the power of the Spirit, is now going to be bestowed upon us for all eternity. The glory of God will be given to us. The blessings of Christ will be given to us because of the grace of God and the work of Jesus. We will spend all eternity basking in the glory of God. This doctrine is called glorification. And I told you that first story because the apostle Paul in his thinking, in his writings, in his mind teaches us that whoever gets the son gets it all. It's assured. It's an incredible doctrine throughout the New Testament that whoever understands, whoever worships, whoever engages with the son, whoever accepts the doctrine of justification gets the whole kit and caboodle, right? It's a new word I just made up, all right? And so Paul here begins to remind us of what it looks like to live life in the Spirit. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he says, So now you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we get to call him Abba, which literally means daddy, or we get to call him father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. And since we're his children, guess what? We're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we also need to share in his suffering. So here's what I want to point out. A couple, just a couple points here this morning. First of all, we're heirs with Christ. In Jesus Christ, because of the doctrine of justification, whoever buys the Son, if you will, gets it all. Okay, glorification. We're now heirs. All that belongs to Christ belongs to his family heritage. And as heirs, the first thing Paul reminds us of as heirs are being part of the family is we have intimate access to God. I want you to hear that again. You have intimate access 
to the God of the universe in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember the audience here, and this goes back to Pastor Joey's sermon way, way back, I think in April, that, you know, that it, um, this is a new church, there's a new movement of God, the new covenant is taken off, the, the, uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is coming into the hearts and lives of the believers, this thing called the church is moving, it's a new work of God, okay, 2,000 years ago, and, and, and so in this church in Rome, there's these Jewish believers and there's these Gentile believers. Now, for the Jews who had grown up under the old covenant, they understood that you don't have access to God. They understood the only way, the only, there was only one person once a year that had access to God. He went into the Holy of Holies with all these rituals that he had to go through, clothing. And I kind of talked about this on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, that the process to enter into the presence of God was huge and intimidating. But, in, but Paul here says, listen, because you have a deposit, you live in the power of the Spirit, you now have access to God because you're an heir of God, you're in the family, and you get to crawl up onto the lap of God, and you get to say, hey, Daddy, right. hey, Dad, Father. And I can imagine the Jewish uh, believers reading this and going, what are you talking about? Nobody gets to go into the holy of, no one gets to enter into the presence of God. But in the name of Christ, because you live in the power of the Spirit, you have acts, intimate access to God. I, uh, you know, one of my favorite things about having children, and, as my, and you, some of you parents are past my stage as far as age, but as my kids get older, my two older boys, I get less and less of daddy, right? But I still have a seven-year-old, so I'm glad we had one a little later in life, right? Because that seven-year-old, I still come home, she comes around, as soon as I walk in the door, daddy, man, it's an awesome feeling. No matter how stinky my day's been, right? That little child goes, hey, daddy, and that's the kind of the relationship that by the power of the spirit that you have with the God of the universe. Incredible, isn't it, church? I remember years ago, I, was, I bought my first house here in the community, and, um, and one day in my, uh, now, so you give me a little background. I, I'm, I'm the son of an HVAC guy, okay? My dad uh, was a very talented um, uh, air conditioning, heating guy. I mean, he can fix anything. You put a tool in my dad's hand, he could, he could rebuild a car with a screwdriver, okay? I mean, that's just how talented he is. And I don't know why he didn't give any of that to me, or he probably tried, and I just want to learn it, right? But, uh, you know, I just have none of that. And so one day I'm walking through my upstairs, and there's a water spot on my ceiling. Now, I don't know much about anything when it comes to construction, but I know that water spots in the ceiling are generally bad news, right? And so I'm like, this cannot be good. And so I climb up into my attic, and <laughs> my AC unit is up there, and uh, your air conditioning unit, if they're mounted in the attic, they have what's called a water pan. And so uh, for those of you who know uh, physics, I guess, that, that when hot air meets cold air, right, it, it creates condensation. So that condensation drips into this pan, and then there's a drain line that drains that out of the house, all right? It's usually out of your, you know, goes out through the wall or something and drips out of your house. And so uh, so I call my dad, and I'm like, I got this water spot in my in my uh, ceiling, and, and it looks like it's coming over the pan, and, and he says, son, when was the last time you cleaned your drain line? I'm like, who, who cleans their drain line, dad, you know? And so he's like, now, son, you should clean your drain line like every two years. Now, just for funny sake, okay, how many of you in this room have clean, cleaned your drain? There's always a couple. How many cleaned your drain line last two years? Look at that. I am well done, all right? You will not have a spot in your ceiling, okay? So... 
I'm like, Dad, who cleans their drain line, you know? And he's like, I, need to get, I get this lecture. And I, so here's what I've decided to do now. This is the great thing about having grandchildren. Every time my dad comes to visit now, I just have a list of maintenance on things I ask him to do so uh, <clears throat> that I should be doing. So, you know, but, and I thought, you know, you only clean, you only think about the drain line on your AC unit when there's a problem, usually, right? And when that thing's clogged up and making a mess in your house. Church, we do the same thing with prayer, quite frankly. Hey, I'm going to go to God because I got a problem. And then, by the way, that's okay. And when you're having a problem, you should climb up on the lap of God and say, hey, Daddy, listen, man, times are tough, but it's bigger than that. We have a relational, intimate opportunity with the God of the universe any moment of any day. Apostle Paul says, man, I pray without ceasing. I pray without ceasing. Now, does that mean you're always on your knees when you're at the job site? That'll probably get you fired, okay? You know, but it, it means that there's a relationship with God because of the power of his spirit and because of Jesus Christ, you get to enter into the presence of the Father because of the spirit in your life and because of the work of Jesus Christ, your high priest, you get to enter in in Jesus's name. You have intimate access to talk to the God of the universe, the God who made it all. The God who speaks and the universe comes into existence. The God who's the sustainer of life. The God who's sustainer of the sun. The God who's sustainer of the water. The God who made everything from uh, all the way down to our DNA. You get to talk to that God. You have intimate access. And Paul says that's part of being an heir to the follower of God. The second thing he talks about here as part of, of being an heir to God is that glorification is assured. It's a sure thing. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says, since we are his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs to God's glory. Church, let me tell you something. No matter how rough your week, you can be assured there's this thing called heaven. There's this thing called eternity. There's this thing called glorification. And Paul says it is assured. In fact, in the New Testament, the doctrine, this kind of goes back to my opening illustration, the doctrine of justification, sanctification, and glorification, in Paul's mind are such a sure thing, they oftentimes lumps them together. It's hard to even tell. In fact, there are times in the New Testament where Paul talks about glorification, his future, as being such a sure thing, he talks about it as if he's presently in it. He's like, that's how much I know it's coming, that it's as sure as can be. He said this to the church in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I love this. I'm certain, Paul says, Philippians 1, verse 6, and I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. You know, I love that verse because last week, you know, we kind of, last two weeks, we really spent talking about this inner struggle, the, the battle between the flesh that lives inside of us, our sin nature, Paul says, and now the deposit of the spirit. Now there's this kind of this internal war. And if you're like me, there's times where that internal spiritual battle wears you out, right? But it's encouraging to know that it was God who started the work and it's God who's going to see it completion. It depends a whole lot less on me and a whole lot on the God that we worship and serve. Isn't that good news? Man, it's not all about me. In fact, it's less about me than I might imagine. If I, would, if I would do the things that God calls me to do and worship him, man, he takes care of the battle. It's his to win from beginning to end. By the way, I'm gonna, I want to say something bold. I, I love that, that song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I want to say something bold. 
If you're here this morning and you would say, yes, I'm a Christian. So I'm talking to you. Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, so if you're investigating the claims of Christ, you just get to listen in, okay, for a minute. If you're here this morning and you, you say, yes, I'm a Christian, if you are not yearning and longing for the day of Christ's return and the glorification of your soul and the glorification of all eternity, your eyes are way too focused on the things of the world. In fact, church, I believe that part of the problem of the church of Jesus Christ here in America is we are not heavenly-minded enough. You've heard that saying, so heavenly-minded, no earthly good. That's a crazy saying. We're not heavenly-minded enough. We're not big-picture focused enough. We're toe-focused on the things that God has told us aren't going to last. The things of this world. The cross before me, man, the world behind me. And we need to be focused on glorification. Jesus is going to return. He is going to set it straight. And for all eternity, we have an opportunity to invest in the things of eternity in this little short time of 60, 70, 80, if you're really healthy, 90 years. Okay? All right. Now, here's the part of this verse that shocked me, okay, as I read it this week. Here's the part I was like, wow, kind of caught me off guard in front of all this really cool stuff we just talked about and things that get us all excited. It's the end of verse 17 in Romans 8. Since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Okay, glorification. But if if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his what? Ugh, stink. Why do you have to put that in there, right? It was all good till then. See, we don't really like to hear that. Now, somehow, you know, as heirs in this time called life, we are going to suffer difficulty. Make no mistake about that. You're going you're gonna to face difficulties. You're going to face trials. You're going to face challenges. Some of you in this room are going to face persecution or challenges because you're a Christian. Some of you at work, there's going to come a moment at work where you're going to have to make a choice an integrity, a character choice, because you're a Christian. Some of you are going to have to go to school and take a particular stand because you're a Christian. Some of you are going to be in a college campus and you're going to have to take a particular stand because you're a Christian, because your worldview is radically different from everyone else's. And there will be some challenges. In fact, I'm always surprised when we're surprised by difficulties and persecutions because God's only son suffered. Why would we think our journey would be any less? Make no mistake about it. As a follower of Christ, you'll suffer challenges for the sake of the gospel. By the way, you want to know why this is so? Because, church, we're at war. The Bible's very, very clear. Now, we're not at war with people. We're talking about spiritual things here, right? The Bible's very, very clear that this this process of sanctification, this process of life is not peacetime. Peacetime is where we're going. But too many of us are living as if it's peacetime. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ and you have a deposit of the third person of the Trinity in your heart, let me be clear. You have chosen a side. <laughs> You've chosen a side. You're now on the side of the things of God and the things of God are at war with the things that are not of God. I always say this, the church and, the fo- and God has three enemies here on earth. Number one is the world. The world is all the philosophies that are battling the truths of God. We're at war with the world. And I'm not, again, it's not a people thing. It's a, it's a truth thing. We're at, floor, we're at war once we become followers of Jesus with our sin nature. 
By the way, the Bible's very clear. Before you had the deposit of the Trinity, before you had the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life, you weren't at war with your sin nature. You were just dead in your sins. You were just at peace, living in sin and death and destruction. That's all that you pursued. But now that you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to deposit the third person, Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and now there's a battle. That's what we've been talking about from Romans 7 and Romans 8, right? And you're at war with the sin nature. And finally, there's a spiritual battle. There's, there's the devil and his, and his legions that spiritually fight against the things of God. So why would we think that we're not going to suffer? Now, here's the good news. Once the deposit of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is put in your life and heart, here's the really good news. You're on the winning team, all right? Revelation assures us that the kingdom of God is going to win. Isn't that cool? You're on the right side of things. But you are, it is not peacetime, and Paul's very clear, man. When we get to glorification, we're also going to suffer here. In this time, there's going to be difficulties. It's a great story in Acts chapter 5. And Acts is, you know, there's a lot of debate about why Acts is called Acts. Acts is written by Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. He wrote actually two two, uh, books to teach us about the works of God. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And so the debate is, is it the Acts of the Apostles? Is it the Acts of the Church? or is it the acts of the Holy Spirit? And my, my take on that is yes, okay? It's all three. That's what's going on. It says the new covenant is entering the earth and for 2,000 years, God's been moving, okay? And so in Acts chapter five, the apostles are teaching about the church and, and, and they're teaching the truths of God and through the church. And so in Acts five, they're going to the temple and they're teaching this whole new thing that Jesus has done. And so the local leaders don't like it. And so they take them and they throw them in the prison. And they tell them the next day you're going to be put on trial. But something interesting happens in the middle of the night. The, the, the God intervenes and releases them from prison. So the high priest and all this religious group, they show up the next day to, with the local government to put these apostles on trial. And they say, hey, somebody go get them out of the jail cell. They go down to the jail cell and guess what? They're not there, right? They're like, what happened? How'd they get out? You know? And so well, they, they search the city and there these apostles are again. They're teaching in the temple about Jesus Christ. They arrest them again. They say, we're going to have this council meeting today. And <clears throat> they decide in this council meeting, they're going to put them to death. That's what they decide. But there's one guy there, his name's Gamaliel, and he says he's a wise person. He's not, not, to our knowledge at the time, he's not a follower of Jesus Christ, but he, he's a wise man. He says, listen, <clears throat> he says, I don't think we should put these guys to death because if what they're doing and what they're teaching is of man, it's going to fizzle out anyway. But if what they're doing and what they're teaching is of God, You're not going to stop it. And he said, we run the risk of being on the wrong side of God. That's really wise, by the way. And why that's wise, this goes back to what I just talked about, about spiritual battles, right? We, We fight spiritually. We never fight human beings, never. We are to sacrifice for other human beings, always. Anytime that the church has put someone to death or done something, uh, harm to another human being in the name of Jesus, it has been a horrible backfire to the things of God. Always. So this man was really wise. And so they decided to just beat these guys and let them go, okay? And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, The apostles left the high council, get this, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that an incredible attitude? Because they understood something. They understood the big picture. They understood that, hey, we may suffer now, but God is, the glorification thing is assured, okay? 
And so Paul transitions. So first of all, he reminds us because the power of spirit, we're heirs with God. We, glorification is assured. Uh, we have intimate access with God. And we're also going to go through some challenges and some suffering because we're at war. This is it's not peacetime. But he reminds us that because of the power of the spirit, we have hope. We have hope. It's one of the greatest words in the English language is the word hope. Some of you came in here this morning, man, and your hope was wearing really thin. You want to know what gives you hope? According to the Apostle Paul here, it's the power of the Spirit. The Spirit reminds us we have hope. And the first thing about hope is he reminds us that even though we may suffer, our suffering is light. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, yet what we suffer now is what? What's it say? Let's do this again because I see you all looking down, all right? Yet what we suffer now is what? Nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal. Now, you might say, well, how, how can Paul say my suffering is nothing? I mean, some of you are here this morning, man, and I know some of your stories, and you came in here this morning, and, and life around you is beating you up, and you're hurting, and you're, it's been a tough year or a tough two years financially, spiritually, physically, and, and every day is a daily grind to get out of bed and put one foot in front of the next, and it's surely tomorrow morning as you get out of bed doesn't feel like nothing. I mean, how can the Apostle Paul say, man, it's nothing? The reason is, is he's talking about perspective here, okay? And I've used a very similar illustration, and I, I haven't thought of a better one. And every time I use this illustration, I think about it personally. It helps me, okay? So I want to use it for you. I want you to imagine that this stage line all the way across here is your existence, and it just goes on forever and ever. That's your existence, okay? And your time of life your 80 or 90 years of this whole thing that goes on is the corner of this stage. That's 80 or 90 years, right? And so Paul's able to say, listen, you are going to go through really difficult times, but listen, it is nothing compared to forever and ever 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 and on it goes. And he says, yes, we're going to go through difficult times, but it is a short, short season of your existence. Paul said this in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's 11, he talks about all the uh, beatings and trials he went through as an apostle planting churches. But in four, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but man, we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Why is he able to say that? It's perspective. What I'm going through is just a short season of what God has for me. Paul goes on to say, listen, he says, he says as far as hope goes, even creation longs for the day when Jesus returns. Creation itself is broken and, and, and groaning. Verse 19 says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting that creation itself is going, man, I can't wait to see who really the heirs of God are. Verse 20, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Paul says creation itself waits with bated breath when Christ returns. Cannot wait. I always say one of, you know, one of the ways that you can, I can help define this for you is 
is this longing is the last day of work before vacation. You know what I mean? Like, I always think the last day of work before your vacation is actually better than the vacation itself sometimes, especially if it's with relatives, right? It's a joke. I'm just kidding. Y'all are laughing because you know it's not true. But, you know... (laughs) But, you know, the last day before vacation, you're like, this isn't such a bad day of work because I'm out of here after this, you know, like this is it, eight or nine days away from this place, woo, you know, and so, you know, and the worst day of vacation is the day before you got to come back because you start thinking about work, right, don't you? Like, oh, I got to go back, you know, and so, but man, it's that, that's the anticipation of hope, and the Bible says even creation longs for that day. Now, the thing about hope is hope is not something you have now. Hope is something that you wait for. Isn't that true? Did you ever think about that? Hope is about something you don't have yet. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 24. says, we're given this hope when we're saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait both patiently and confidently, Right? How many of you drove up here this morning in your car, and as you were driving, you were, I'm not saying you weren't thankful, okay, because I know you're probably thinking, but as you're driving up here, you're like, man, I really hope to have this car one day. No, you stop hoping for that car. You have that car. You start hoping for the next car, right? Same thing with your house. I'm not talking about a spirit of thanksgiving. You're thankful for where you live, but nobody hopes for the house they have. You have that house. You hope for the one you hope to someday own. Is that, does that make sense? You hope for what is in the future. And Paul says, we hope for what God is eventually going to do. And our hope is grounded. It's, it's two things about our hoping. Number one, it's patient. We have to wait patiently on the Lord. See, some of you are sitting here thinking, well, what's taking God so long? I mean, if, if he's going to glorify, you know, take us to eternity, it's going to be this glorification thing, and all the blessings of Christ are going to be a part of it. It's like, I want that now. You ever feel like that? Why can't I just get it? What's, why is he wasting all my time here? This is tough, right? I want to give you a little perspective on that, too. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. Why? He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he's giving more time for everyone to repent. Church, when you're going through a difficult time, you have to broaden out, see the bigger picture, and remember people. Our God has a passion for people. What's taken him so long? There's somebody in your sphere of influence that hasn't yet heard the gospel. And you're on mission. And so as you're suffering and you're going through difficult times, I want you to be mindful. Guess what? There's somebody else in my life that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. And I'm on mission. Maybe it's a kid. Maybe one of your children's wandered far from God. And man, there's a twinge of you. It's like, man, I'm glad God hasn't consummated all things and restored all things. Because at that moment, there's no opportunity to hear the gospel. And so in the meantime, and you're being patient, you're hopeful that they come to Christ. Maybe it's a coworker, a loved one, a neighbor. God is being patient. Why? Because he wants everyone to have opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel. The second thing he says is we wait confidently, Paul says. We wait confidently because, because we know that the work of salvation is ultimately the work of God, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work is going to complete it. So we can be confident in our hope that this God, the same God that raised his son from the dead, that same spirit lives inside of us. And so we have hope that his promises are true. 
We have that hope. And so we, we hold tightly and we can cling confidently to the truths of God. By the power of the Spirit, church, we have hope. It's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. I want to finish with a story and then we'll go ahead and close with prayer. The, <clears throat> the story is told of a, of a quirky old professor that wanted to teach his students the concept of hope and its power. And by the way, this goes back to the title of my sermon this morning, The Power of the Spirit. See, a lot of times when we hear the word power of the Spirit, we think about some crazy thing. Maybe we think about the gifting or the fruit, and all those things are part of what the Spirit does. But more than that, one of the things Paul's teaching here is the power of the Spirit is to give you hope. And so this quirky old professor wanted to teach his students about the power of hope. And so one day they came into their classroom, and all the desks had been cleared out. There was no place to sit. All the tables had been pushed aside. In the middle of the room was a stainless steel 55-gallon drum filled about halfway with water. So this quirky old professor, he goes into his back office, and out he comes with a lab mouse, and he throws this thing into this 55-gallon barrel of water, and this thing swims and swims, swimming for its life. About the five-minute mark, this mouse gets to the side of the barrel and is trying to claw its way up, but because it's stainless steel and it's slick, it can't make its way out, and it sinks back down. About the 10-minute mark, this mouse is struggling for its life. Mice, by the way, are not good swimmers. Struggling for its life. About the 12-minute mark, it's starting to bob up and down. At this point, several of the students get emotionally attached to this mouse, and one of them wants to re- goes to reach in and save it, and the professor slaps her arm away and says, let it go. At the 14-minute mark, about all hope is gone. At the 15-minute mark, this mouse drowns. Professor reaches in and grabs that dead mouse. He walks to the back, and he picks up another mouse and throws it back into this 55-gallon drum. The whole process repeats itself. The students are in disbelief. Surely, this professor is not going to let another mouse die. Five-minute mark, it reaches the side, can't crawl its way up. Ten-minute mark, starts bobbing up and down. Twelve-minute mark, seems like hope's gone. Fourteen-minute mark, it's going down and struggling to get back and resurface and grab air. And at the 14-minute mark, this professor reaches in, grabs hold of this mouse, and does something crazy. He does a ten count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, nine, ten. And he throws that mouse back in that 55-gallon drum. And for the rest of that class hour, that mouse swims. And that professor says, I want you to come back. You all feel free to revisit this classroom anytime you want during the day. And at lunchtime, a couple of students say, hey, let's go check on that mouse. At lunchtime, that mouse was still swimming. Six o'clock that evening, a couple of the students said, let's go back and check on that mouse. That mouse, 12 hours later, was still swimming. What's the difference between mouse one and mouse two is hope. Church, I want to encourage you that Paul says glorification is a sure thing. But I want to remind you in the in-between time, one of the powers that the Spirit gives you is hope. And how do we have that hope? We, we, well, first of all, we're patient and we're confident, and we're mindful. We have an eternal perspective that our life is just a little corner of this great thing that God is doing, revealing his glory. I want to encourage you with this. We serve and worship a God who doesn't waste any hurts. We're going to get to that next week. Y'all know Romans eight twenty eight, right? Not all of you, but many of you do, right? 
God uses all things to work together for what? What's he talking about? He doesn't waste any hurts for the glory of God. It's hope. We have hope that the journey is just a perspective thing. Is it difficult? Of course it's difficult. Why? Because we're in a spiritual battle. Why would we think that God's going to glorify us and not allow us to suffer? But it's just a very, very short, momentary light thing from now to eternity. And we have hope that when Christ returns, all the glory that is poured out, all the blessing that is poured out on God's son, Jesus Christ, will be poured out on his heirs on his children. And in the in-between time, church, you have intimate access to the God of the universe because of the Spirit and because of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for hope. And if we're honest, God, everybody in this room, there's moments where our hope is wearing thin. And so, God, I pray that By the power of your spirit, God, you would remind us of perspective, of eternity. God, that you would remind us, God, that you don't waste any hurts, that all hurts, all challenges, all trials can be used to bring you glory and to make Jesus famous. God, that you would remind us that you're not being slow, but rather you're being patient, giving everyone an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, for each of us, as we go out this room, that you would remind us of the, the mission that we have. And you would remind us there's a lot of people walking through life with no hope, thinking that the grave has final say over them. But God, we're a different sort of people. We understand that the God who began this good work in us is going to be faithful to complete it. And upon the return of Christ, God, we will be uh, under the umbrella of your glory and your blessing for all eternity. All the things you originally created us to be, God, will be fulfilled for all eternity in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to be heirs of the Son of God. And God, we thank you for the intimate access that we have to your presence. And God, we are mindful that the only reason we have access to your presence is your gracious gift of your Son. And so we enter your presence in the name of Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church, this is our offering time. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, first of all, let me say this. Thank you so much for being here. We are, we are thrilled that you're here this morning. I want you to know we are not after your money. So uh, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. This is just one of the ways we worship the Lord at Coastal. If you'd like to join us in that, you're welcome to. On the side of that bulletin is a tear-off. We call that a connect card. Uh, if you would just fill that out as a guest, we, will, uh, we just want to send you a thank you card. That's all we're going to do with that. If you have any other prayer needs or, or anything else, we, uh, you can use that card to communicate with us. Joel.
You guys can stand and worship with us. Sing, son of man. <laughs> 